for a period of time, I worked at a uh, manufacturing company. Um, I lived in the manufacturing factory in the Zhejiang province, um, kind of middle of nowhere, a couple hours south of Shanghai. Um, but I lived there with about 2,000 Chinese workers who didn't speak English. So that was a blast. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Sean Ireton with the New Inspiration Extraordinary Gentleman Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have uh, my next guest on the show. His name is Chris Snell Miraflor, and he is a gentleman that I met recently after having coffee with my last guest. Chris Snell is a really cool guy, and I knew we were going to be good friends because we had such a great conversation. We hit it off. I learned that he works for the organization PHP Agency which is People Helping People. And the CEO of that company is Patrick Bet David. And you guys, if you're on LinkedIn a lot, you may have seen Patrick on there frequently. I know he comes up in my feed a lot. But anyway, Chris Snell is a really cool guy. He's got some awesome stuff for uh, us today. So what I wanted to do was start off with his origin story. And I wanted to tell you that he was born in a Christian family in LA and lived here till the age of four. And then with his family, he moved to the Philippines, where they began their journey to assist impoverished communities. And then by the time he was 21, he visited a total of 13 countries. That's wild and crazy. And that's really cool. So, Chrisnell, what were those uh, 13 countries, actually? I want to get into that. Oh, man. Um, I mean, if you count USA, <laughs> Mexico, uh, Canada, um, uh, South Africa, uh, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Philippines, uh, Japan, um, London. Uh, I think it's around that. I might be missing a couple, but uh, it's around uh, yeah. around that. That's crazy, man. That's, that's <laughs> awesome, though. Thank um, you. And, and after that, like during that time, for two years, he recruited, he trained, and he led thousands of students and churches in short-term mission trips to Mexicali, Mexico. He worked primarily with churches and, and orphanages and men's rehab centers, men's homeless shelters, and, and a men's prison in Mexicali. Um, and then he began working at the PHP agency. And for those of you who don't know, PHP is a financial services marketing, life insurance, retirement planning, and annuities company. And uh, the reason why I brought Chris now on the show today is because he is an international business student. Uh, and since graduating, he's uh, put his degree to use. He has real world experience using this degree. And, um, you know, he's what we want to do is focus on how we can provide you guys, the listeners, some value here on how to properly work with Asian and Latino cultures. If you're unfamiliar with those customs or, you know, other countries globally as well, um, just so that you get a really good handle on when you're doing business with countries outside the U.S., What's some good ways to handle those situations? Um, so with all that said, I want to give the floor to Chris Nell and uh, so he can describe his role at PHP and also expand on his origin story. So thank you for coming on, man. Thank you, Sean. Um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's <laughs> I love how we met, first of all literally just outside Starbucks and um, just having a conversation. You're having a conversation with your guy. I'm having a conversation with uh, someone I was with and uh, just being able to touch base on that. And I, that definitely rings true to the uh, my belief in 
connection in people um, and no, my role and the reason that I'm with PHP agency is because we have a desire to truly help people and to pour value into people um, from, you know, the top of our government to lower income families, everyday families, you know, people are going through financial struggles and um, that's something that we realize and people are being, you know, left behind and we want to be able to walk alongside people um, and, you know, teach them about finance, teach them about a proper education of, you know, what is it that uh, the wealthy do differently with their money than, you know, middle and lower in- income class families. And we want to be that voice. We want to be the heralder. <laughs> we want to be the hands and feet of that message yeah. uh, going to families and people and saying, Hey, like, um, how can we help you? How can we pour value into you? Um, and just be able to walk alongside people. Um, so I love everything that the company stands for faith, family, business, um, very focused on, you know, truly being a difference, um, not only the nation, but in the entire world, uh, we're expanding internationally, uh, right now. And it's super exciting. Um, you know, we're expanding into India, um, and continuing, uh, to get endorsements by uh, different public figures, Oscar Del Hoya, Magic Johnson, uh, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Cuban, um, several different entrepreneurs as well as uh, public figures have endorsed our company. And, and it's been crazy um, just walking like, alongside these people and growing so much from this company. Um, so yeah, just a little bit about my background. I mean, you touched based on most of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, growing up uh, in the States and in the Philippines uh, to different socioeconomic conditions. Um, you know, I grew up in a place where I I was very familiar with um, impoverished communities, with um, what Americans would see as, you know, the poor people. Um, you know, grew up in the Philippines um, every summer. Well, yeah, most of my childhood memory memories were there. I uh, spent a lot of time there. Um, and every single time that I was there, um, you know, it wasn't uncommon for us to, you know, wake up and see the living room flooded. Um, that was just normal for us. We're swimming in the streets. We're swimming um, just to get from place to place, uh, water up to our waist and even higher sometimes. Um, but that definitely opened my eyes to the importance of culture, people, and meeting people where they are rather than just seeing people as another buck or seeing people as just a monetary value, but seeing people as the greatest currency, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally does. (laughs) But yeah, so throughout my journey, um, I've had crazy experiences. I had the opportunity to travel around Southeast Asia and, you know, go to about seven different countries. Um, and one of them being Hong Kong, Hong Kong, um, has a deep history of, you know, attachment to China. Um, no, but it's at this, it's also a very special country, um, because it is so attractive to foreigners, you know, people from all over the world go to Hong Kong. Um, while I'm in Hong Kong, um, I <clears throat> reached out to a man who um, he was a CEO of the Macong Club, um, <clears throat> and it's a counter trafficking organization. So, um, you know, just going into um, my trip throughout Southeast Asia, um, something I knew about Southeast Asia was that human trafficking was a big thing there. Um, you know, you look at Thailand, uh, Bangkok; it's pretty much the central hub of trafficking victims uh, internationally. People are literally sent there from all over the world. Um, but while I'm in uh, Hong Kong, I meet, I met with a man named Matt Friedman. 
fantastic guy, um, fantastic organization. Um, and what this organization does is they, um, they're a counter trafficking organization and they target, uh, companies within the, or primarily they target supply chain management and something that I didn't know that he had revealed to me was about 60% of the labor force within supply chain management is forced labor. Hmm. Um, so people who, you know, are taken uh, from young age, um, originally for sex trafficking, um, they're exploited to, you know, be used as forced labor during the day. And then at night, um, they would be sold as prostitutes. Um, and that's something that you know, really hit me really hard. Um, I didn't realize that so many people around the world um, were going through that. Um, that was just so foreign to me. Uh, and as we were having that conversation, um, he was talking about 27 million people are in trafficking today. But only 20,000 get rescued and restored. Wow. I don't know if I did my math right, but that's somewhere around 0.01% that's crazy. of people. Wow. Right. And man, it frustrates me. Um, I was asking, you know, Matt, like, how did you start getting into this? And this is a story shared with you at when we met. Um, how did you get into this industry? Um, he worked as a journalist for a good amount of time. Um, and he, you know, started to show interest in um, wanting to, you know, rescue and restore women um, who are being enslaved internationally. And he told me the story. Um, he told me a story about this one girl, um, one of the first people he ever interviewed. Um, it was him and several other associates with him. And they're interviewing this woman. And he got permission from the pimp and the madam, the entire brothel, to interview this woman and tell her story. As <clears throat> she was sharing, he was um, you know, asking her different questions. He asked her, you know, how'd you get here? How did you get to this place? Um, you know, she came from a very rural village, uh, very far from the city. And um, one day a man came to her town and, you know, was looking for a wife, you know, and promised wealth and fortune. And her family told her to go, go with him, do whatever it takes to send money back home. Because that was the role of women in that culture. You're there so that you can send money home to your family because upon birth, that's pretty much the identity upon birth. Females in uh, the Chinese culture, um, in rural China, um, they're always told, like, I mean, families just always wanted a son to carry on their name, right? And so she was told this, and she was tricked by this man to go into the city. Um, She's, you know, blindfolded uh, and taken to a brothel. Um, Once she opened her eyes and they took blindfolds off um she didn't realize that there were men um lined up in front of her um and what the madam did is they set it up so that a row of men um would rape her to break down their spirits so that they can be used through emotional extortion essentially Mm -hmm. and something that I found was, man, that, that just frustrated me. And he asked her, how many times uh, had you been, I don't know if he asked her this, but she mentioned it. Uh, she mentioned that she'd been raped 6,000 times in her life. Wow. And she remembers each one. And no, 
what was frustrating was um, she couldn't do anything about it. She couldn't do anything about it. Um, they had her captive physically, and now they're going to control her emotionally because they had broken down her spirits. Matt returns to ask and asks her, aren't you mad? Aren't you mad at uh, these people that did this to you? Aren't you mad at the people who, you know, blindfolded you, the man who raped you, the pimp and the madam for sending this up? And she looks at him and she says, no. I understand that they're evil people. I understand that they're going to do evil things. Who I'm mad at are the people like you. And she points at Matt and his associates. People like you who claim to be good, who claim to love people, but don't do anything about it. Every night... And she was saying this, every night I prayed to God or whatever God was out there to save me. But no one came. Nobody came. And here you are asking me these questions, thinking that you're doing the good thing. But no one came. That story hit me. That story made me realize that, you know, talk is cheap. (laughs) A lot of people say they want to change the world. A lot of people say, a lot of people are more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world. A lot of people aren't willing to do what it takes to change the world. And man, that story hit me and it sits with me. And that's a story I'm going to continue to tell because people need to know the reality that women are facing. And that's just one woman. That's just one. There are 27 million 27 million. That's a lot. <laughs> so now that it's crazy. And that's, that's such a powerful story. And it's insane to me that, that this is happening. Um, where, where can people go to like, what, what are some of the organizations that you follow or that you know of that you can um, put out there right now to tell people who want to engage in helping fight against this like what what are some organizations that are that are particularly helping with this this scenario yeah um like i said uh, the macon club is one it's a not as well known um but it's growing um they just take a different different route in fighting trafficking than the traditional going into the brothels and rescuing women they you know audit corporations they audit governments um and that's kind of their approach and awesome organization they do amazing things so it's the mekong club m-e-k-o-n-g club um they're one organization ijm international justice mission um they do a lot of great work in india cambodia the philippines um in fighting trafficking um fantastic i um personally worked with um an organization called uh eden ministries um where no they're a jewelry company that helps uh fight uh, trafficking, um, also nightlight, um, just small uh, companies that are, you know, the their, you know, business model is focused on uh, restoring, rescuing, and restoring women in trafficking, and helping them um, find employment afterwards and re, um, reengage with society. So um, there are tons of different organizations out there. I would. Um, suggest and advise that people you know, look into that, look into what's out there. Um, because it's a topic that people don't talk about because it's not seen. Um, but I've seen it. <laughs> so let's talk about it. Yeah. I mean, cause we, we don't 
necessarily see it firsthand here in the States, you know, but are there cases where uh, women are being trafficked from the U.S. Absolutely. to these other countries? Like, where, and where does it happen? Not a lot of people know this, but the Super Bowl is actually one of the um, biggest um, events where human trafficking happens. Um, I know there are districts all over the nation um, that are known for their trafficking, and they continue to move. Um, people are aware of this. The pimps and madams, like they're very aware of this. It happens all over the states. Um, I've personally met several people um, who um, used to be, you know, who used to be trafficked by um, these different brothels. Uh, I've met several of them in my life and have been, you know, blessed to hear their testimony about how they've come from that and how they've been restored from that. Um, But it happens all over. You just don't see it. That's crazy, man. What can, what can people look out for? Like, what are some, what are Mm -hmm. some signs that people can notice if they're at a bigger sporting event like that or um, Mm -hmm. something so that they can, they can be a member of society doing something to stop it. Yeah. Uh, A lot of it is the way that women are, man, I mean, this goes into like a huge topic of um, like the way that women are treated or the way that women are seen at sporting events sometimes they'll you know just go up to men mm. and ask if they want services right or sometimes they'll be stationed at a place and people who are looking for it know what to look out for um there's a lot of control with um <clears throat> men watching over the women so oftentimes if a woman is being extorted if a woman is being trafficked then um there's usually a man checking to see like is someone going to take her away because they're the women are their assets for money right so they're not going to make sure that someone takes that away so there's always eyes looking out so some things to look out for are you know guys always looking around um and checking up on the status of women usually they'll be in just one spot not really moving um and events like that oftentimes um like there's like the women would be in just one area one spot um checking around to see um if you know someone's looking or watching um but also like presenting themselves in a way where like oh yeah like i can provide a service to you um so different things like that um that's why it's so hard to see because it's literally hidden in plain sight with human behavior so they are providing um, prostitution services. They're not necessarily abducting women at the sporting event, right? It's just kind of mm-hmm. yeah. It's they don't necessarily abduct women at a sporting event. It's more of, that becomes a hub for clients for customers in terms of like quote unquote like exporting women. Um, that happens more internationally. Got it. Um, usually within Asia. And even like, I mean, when I was walking the streets of Thailand in the uh, red light district in Bangkok, um, I saw women from Africa. I saw women from Russia, um, South America, like Asia, different types of Asians, um, Middle East. Um, oh man, there's it hurts, but it really is a destination for um, human exploitation. So, um, 
that's a really distressing topic. And, and for the listeners out there who are, who are tuning in on this and they want to do something about it, go to those sources that Chris Nell mentioned. Um, and if you feel like you want to do something about it, go to those sources and can they donate? Do they volunteer? Like, how does that work? You can donate, you can buy products to help fund, um, <clears throat> you know, their causes, their, um, you, their education seminars, um, there are different ways to get involved. Um, internships, um, international internships, if you want to, you know, really get into it and learn more about how you, um, whether as a business owner or just a, you know, member of society, um, how you can do your part. Right. Cool. Um, so let's, uh, let's jump into that story about the, the man in the shack, um, and which is something that you actually experienced firsthand. This wasn't a secondhand experience, but um, let's jump into that. And then we can start talking about some of the things guys can do to uh, be better in business in global cultures. Yeah. So I lived in South Africa for several months um, in the KwaZulu-Natal province, um, little town called Peter Metzberg. And uh, just beautiful country, beautiful country, right? Um, I was there for a study abroad program with my university um, and just had an amazing time. Um, while I was there, we was part of the program to uh, work with a member of the church. Um, and it was in a little township, like a small little town, um, not a very affluent area, not a very rich area, but still a place where um, poverty was all over the place. Um, KwaZulu Natal is uh, the epicenter for HIV AIDS um, in the world. Over 50% of the community um, suffered from HIV AIDS, yet those who suffered um, were kind of outcasted and deemed as minorities. And uh, the, I don't know if many people have heard of the term untouchables, um, but they were the people that were outcast from society. Um, there was one day that we were me and several of their students, uh, we were on the field. We had a list of names. You know, we had it on this paper, a list of houses and names of people that, you know, we were supposed to talk to. And as we're traveling, as we're going to each house, uh, we're almost done, right? There's just what one name, one um, house that needed to be um, checked. You know, one more person we needed to visit. Um, super hot day very exhausting uh we're walking and you know social workers that we were working with they were oh man they didn't want to keep going right they didn't want to continue um they're just really tired very thirsty wanted to go home there was something in me and my colleagues that um we just felt like we needed to keep going so uh we were in the area of where the last house would have been um we're in that area and there was like a we couldn't find the house. Um, it was between two houses, um, and we none of them were the numbers. There was something in us that pointed to this little shack a little bit further down the road. We were like, what is that? We asked the social workers, and they said, you know, that's probably like an outhouse, probably a little shed um, for tools and equipment. I was like, huh, I don't know. I feel like someone's in there Let, let's let's try there right so we go through this narrow pathway uh to get to that house um and we knock on the door um it creaks open and in it we find a man just sitting on a stool staring at the radio um you know it was not a very big space 
it was probably an eight by eight um, jack, if anything, uh, maybe eight by six. And he was just sitting there, skin and bones, you know, staring at the radio, pretty much waiting to die. And um, we asked him, are you this person? You know, it was a name that we had on the list. And he, was like, he said, yes, that is me. Yes. What are you doing here? Like, where's your family? Like, is this your home? He's like, yeah, um, this is where I live. Um, several, you know, days before he had been stabbed um, by his neighbors. Um, they were really mad at him. Um, they think he stole something. They accused him of something. They stabbed him and left for him for dead on the streets. Um, and he was able to make his way back to his house, but he was just sitting there. Um, and he had AIDS, um, and he had what he thought was medication, but actually turned out to just be potassium tablets. Um, he thought he was taking the medication, so he was he was dying. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this is a guy who'd been outcast from society, who had been, you know, stabbed by his neighbors and who had lost so much. His family didn't care for him anymore. Um, I believe he suffered from um, drug abuse at an early age and kind of was left for dead um, by his family and neighbors. Um, and what's crazy was, you know, we were looking for him and we could barely find him. How much harder would it have been for people around him to notice him, you know? And something that really hit me was as we were talking, you know, we were just asking him a little bit about his life and you know our the social workers that we were with told him yeah these are americans who'd come from you know the states to see how you are and you know we're here to see how you are and he was overjoyed man and the the smile on his face was ridiculous like i'd never seen so much joy in someone because in his mind here's what he's thinking and this is what he expressed Americans flew all the way from their country to come to my house. How crazy is that? Like even his own neighbors didn't care for him, but Americans who had never met me flew all the way from their country to my country, walked down this dirt road, this narrow pathway to get to my home just to ask how I am. Like, and he said, because you guys have done this, it showed to me that I have hope in God again. That really hit me because, you know, I was struggling with these thoughts of what is my purpose here? Like, I'm just going to leave soon. It's only like a short term trip. Um, like, am I actually making an impact? But the power of presence, man, is something that, you know, a lot of people take for granted. The power of being present with someone, being face to face relationships people you know and that's something that you know pushes me to continue to see value in people and continue to pour value into others yeah so what were your um what were some of your biggest challenges working in these different countries like when you um were in canada when you're in mexico when you're in you know the philippines and all these other different countries like what what was one of the biggest challenges that you can remember that you had to overcome and how did you overcome it? I think the biggest challenges um, in working with different countries and working in different countries is 
realizing the differences between everybody. A country is, you know, made up based on their values. If you look at every country's economic system, you'll notice that they're all different because they value different things. It's all about values. A lot of people think, oh yeah, they're, you know, they're just, they just speak a different language. They just speak, you know, X, Y, Z, right. And they behave differently, but coming down to the why, why is it that they have a different economic system? Why do they have a different government system? Why do they have different uh, principles? And it's all based on their values. What is it that they value? So I think the biggest struggle um, is determining what are the values of these people and how can I personally adapt my condition to be able to appeal to that? Because at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about the client. It's not about me. It's about the people that I'm serving. How can I best communicate to them that I'm here for them rather than communicating to them, hey, I'm just going to be stuck in my American way. I'm just going to be stuck in my American business way and expect you to, you know, want my services. Like, no, that's not how it's going to work. They need to see that you care about their culture, that you care about them because otherwise that relationship is gone. My business is all about relationships. Each person you meet, every meaningful relationship you have has value greater than any monetary value that you could ever, you know, receive. I mean, the main reason I wanted to be an international business major uh, was because I saw value in culture. I saw value in different people. Um, but also I wanted to understand more about how the world works because business business is the way the world works. People don't realize that. They think oh, hospitals, churches, like they're all like their own industry. No, it's all a business. It's all a business. Everything is a business. And how can we incorporate that and understand the importance of cultural differences in business? See, what a lot of people don't realize is that you can't approach every single person the same. If I'm from, you know, if I grew up in the United States and I'm doing business in China, for example, you can't approach it the same way. Like you need to understand their culture, their values, the way that they do business. There's a big gap. They're big cultural barriers that a lot of business people from the United States wholeheartedly, they think, you know, they're doing the right thing. But man, if they slip up, they can lose a client forever because maybe they said something wrong. They didn't introduce themselves properly. They didn't. Um, they're very, there's some customs uh, that we need to be aware of when dealing with international partners. So, um, so what was what was one particular instance or occurrence where you had to make sure that you are benefiting both parties? I'd say that the <laughs> um, most difficult time to adapt um, was when I was in China. When I was in China, um, that was the most difficult, um, I guess, adaptation of um, my behavior to meet their needs. Uh, Chinese culture is so different from American culture. Um, so for a period of time, I worked at a uh, manufacturing company. Um, I lived in the manufacturing factory in the Zhejiang province, um, kind of middle of nowhere, a couple hours south of Shanghai. Um, but I lived there with about 2,000 Chinese workers who didn't speak English. So that was a blast. Um, but in that, I found... Uh, that I had to learn a lot of the key words 
in order to gain respect. Um, I'm Filipino, right? I don't, I'm not white. Yeah, so they didn't, actually most of them didn't think that I was American. So that was really difficult because if they thought I was American, they'd automatically try to speak English, you know, but then I look Asian. So they automatically spoke Chinese to me. So Mandarin to be specific. Um, but yeah, that was a struggle, you know. Um, but then I realized it's not about me. It's not about you um, trying to figure, trying to tell people, oh, I'm American. It's saying, how can I meet you where you're at? How can I communicate to you and tap into the values that you really look at, that you really appreciate? Tap into that for that proper communication and that proper benefit. Right. So, so this segues into, I think that was valuable advice actually, but uh, segueing into the actual tips at this point. Um, <clears throat> so how would you properly show respect to those cultures and help everyone mutually benefit from a deal or proposition using elements of body language, voice tone, uh, the spoken language? You spoke a little bit about, um, you know, getting respect from them by knowing key phrases, key words, and things like that in their own native language. But what about body language? What about voice tone? What about um, other elements like that? Yeah. Um, so there's some things that are universal about um, human communication. Um, one, uh, smiling is great. <laughs> we um, are attracted to smiles. Um, so whether or not I know what I'm talking about, um, when I'm, you know, speak trying to speak their language, um, keeping a smile on my face and laughing, like it keeps that relationship strong. So, for example, um, let's say I'm meeting with a client who only speaks Chinese, right? Who only speaks Mandarin, um, and I try to say something um, in their language, and they know that I can't speak, um, but them seeing you trying forms that bond, forms that you know trust, because they say, man. They, they're thinking, man, this person took the time to try to learn about my culture. And they're having a good time with it. Even if they messed up, even if they completely screwed up um, and they tried, it shows me how much they care. And that's more valuable to me. In the Chinese culture, there's something called kawanshi. And it's kind of like, I scratch, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And the way that business is done in China is often just through relationship. Things get done faster if you have a relationship with someone. Um, so I'd say um, going for it, just taking that next step of it, being willing to embarrass yourself um, for the sake of that relationship because they see you mess up. Uh, you say something completely wrong because the tonation was wrong um, in the language, but you tried. They're going to laugh. They're going to have a good time. <laughs> So they so they they have a pretty good idea, pretty good grasp. I mean, obviously, based on context, if you because uh, I know with like Mandarin and Cantonese and all that, there's all those different <laughs> tones, and the wrong tone means yep. the wrong word, or you know, the right tone means the right word. So if you are trying to speak their language in and you do the wrong tone, they're going to understand it in context, right? Whether how how hard you're trying to speak with them, right? Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, I'll say most of the most of the time they will. Okay, yeah. There's sometimes I've I've tried to say something I've completely butchered it and they're just so confused. And if I said it a little bit different, they're like, "Oh, that's what you're saying." <laughs> if I'm trying to say I love my mom, I probably said something like, "Oh, I need the toilet," 
or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. They're, they're confused. They're like, what? Because they think that you've learned their language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it all depends on where you're from. You know, if I was in Shanghai, um, they'll understand that I'm not going to be as fluent. Sometimes if I'm a more rural area, um, because there are pretty much no expats there, there are no foreigners there, um, they'll think that I completely speak, you know, so it's kind of different. Um, it's weird how the more foreigners there are, the more, the lighter they are about, you know, conversation um, in a place like Shanghai. Whereas if I were in my manufacturing company and I was trying to speak to people, um, I mean, we still have a good time, you know, we still have a good time. Um, but it's all about finding th- th- what they expect and meeting that expectation. And if you don't meet it, just go for it. You know? So moral to the story here is that, um, from, from what I'm gathering from this conversation and, and jump in here to Chris now, when you, when you feel like you want to contribute yeah. something, but Basically, the moral to the story here is that when you are trying to interact with a different culture, do some homework. Like before you go somewhere, at least kind of research what those countries' customs are so you have a ground level foundational understanding of what their values are, how they communicate, things like that. So that when you go there, you're not completely ill-equipped and that – You'll earn their respect by the fact that you did some homework, that you tried to understand who they are as people, because as people, all we want, our our natural innate need is to be loved, right? So no matter what country you're in, as long as you can show the fact that you are loving their their culture in some way or loving them as people, they will understand Mm -hmm. that. So whether they speak English or not, try to speak to them in their native tongue first. And if they mm-hmm. do speak English, then you guys can probably have a conversation. Am, am I right in, in saying that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to do your homework. You got to do your research. Um, you don't want to show up somewhere and not know a single thing about, you know, their culture or their language. <laughs> they just won't respect you. Yeah. Right. You no, know, just imagine if someone came to America and they didn't speak a lick of English like most American businessmen will not, they will not recognize that or respect that, right. you know, like always put yourself in their shoes. So it's essential to building rapport and building this, uh, a mutual respect for one another in business, whether you speak English or not, like whether you're doing business here in just America, or if you're working globally, understanding that you need to build rapport in, in these simple, simple ways. We, often take this stuff for granted and we forget how important respecting people within their own culture is in America where we're used to it. We know that shaking hands, looking somebody in the eye and smiling is a good thing, but in other countries uh, there's different, different things there. So in China, for example, Mm -hmm. what, what would be a custom there? So I know they shake hands Mm -hmm. in, in, uh, business environments, mm-hmm. but is, for example, bowing something that you want to do, or is it going to make you look like a weird American tourist or something? Yeah, like don't that? bow. Okay, <laughs> don't bow. Don't bow in China. Um, it's actually funny because a lot of times in America, um, business conversations happen over dinner, right? In China, they don't happen at dinner. Dinner is for relationship. Dinner is where you, you know, you just eat together and you talk together and you laugh together. Business happens at KTV, 
the karaoke bar. <laughs> the business conversations happen around the alcohol and that's where all the negotiations happen when you're singing. It's, it's crazy. So different. Yeah. So different. That's super fascinating. Cause I know that, um, at my last, uh, my last day job, there's a, um, he's a guy from, he's Chinese descent mm-hmm. and he went to Korea and in Korea, you're supposed to pour drinks for other people. You don't mm-hmm. pour your own drink. No. Same with China. And, and it's like, um, it's how old you are. I think it was like you pour the drinks for the elders. So there's subtle little nuances like that, that people need to brush up on and make sure that they're familiar with those things. And, um, but, um, to wrap things up here with, uh, where, where people can find you, Facebook, LinkedIn, and your email address, how can people find you in those areas? Absolutely. Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, my name is Chris Nell Miraflor, K-R-I-S-N-E-L, Miraflor, M-I-R-A-F-L-O-R. Um, for my email, my email is uh, literally just chrisnellmiraflor at gmail.com. Um, that's my personal. I prefer personal. Um, yeah, just, you know, let me know if you have any questions. Um, if you ever want to talk about international business, different cultures, uh, different customs to be aware of before going anywhere. Um, but yeah, just dealing with relationships and um, international business in general. Yeah, just throw me some questions. Yeah. And uh, as we talked about before, he works for PHP and he does finance and other financial needs for people and different assessments and things like that. So if you need some help in that area, definitely let him know and I'm sure he can help you out there. I would love to. Yes. So I want to end the episode with this question. What is your image saying about you today? Mm. To my image is saying, it tells a story. My image... Um, take someone who was bullied as a kid, who, you know, who was picked on a lot, who didn't grow up with much confidence, who was insecure, who cared too much about what people thought and has transformed it into someone of confidence, someone who can look at the world and uh, not fear rejection, someone who can walk confidently, shoulders up, head, head high, um, just taking on the world, you know, and each step by step, I've seen so much in my life. I've endured so much about in my life. Um, yes, I'm young, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I mean, there's more time, obviously, but um, I say my image is one that has developed and is telling a story about where I've come from to where I am now and to where I'm going to go. Great. I love it. Awesome, man. So Chris Nell Miraflora, thanks again once more time for coming on the show. And I want to acknowledge you for all the work that you've done, um, traveling to these different countries, helping these people out, um, being someone that is coming from the United States to countries like South Africa and helping helping people, right? Like the core foundation of what PHP is all about, people helping people. And you are actually living that. You're serving people financially with all these different things. You've been to these other countries and helped people in their their own circumstances to help you know rebuild them back up, rehabilitate people, lead churches and students, and going into these different men's homeless shelters and men's prison things like that. Like, just want to acknowledge you for that and being such a really uh, generous soul with your time and coming on the show and being somebody who can provide value to other people. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Sean. It's my pleasure. Absolutely, man. Appreciate you a ton. (laughs) 
yeah it's it's been a it's been a blessing and honor to be here cool and i truly appreciate you thanks man awesome (laughs) all right until the next one take care guys Thank you guys so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Inspiration Extraordinary Gentleman podcast. If you enjoyed the content, give it a like, subscribe, and if you know someone who needs to hear this or wants to hear this, share it with them. Don't hold back. Let them hear it. And if you have any questions for me or my guest, we'd love to answer those questions for you. So shoot me a tweet, DM me on Instagram, leave a comment below on YouTube, or find me on Facebook. If you have Anchor FM, you can message me on my station. The username is at New Inspiration, N-U-I-N-S-P-I-R-A-T-I-O-N. And as always, make the rest of today extraordinary, gentlemen.